quick point um, of personal privilege. Yes. We slam it like nobody's business. This is Armstrong and Getty. It's when you guys are supposed to cheer. What do you call it? Uncomfortable clarity? I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I you. Hey, man. All right, go, go. <clears throat> I'm ready. Here's Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. We're on this topic. A lot of people should be on this topic. I think we talked to this guy when the book came out. It's He's the author of The Boy Crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Warren Farrell saying this. What, what I found is that in the prison population, in the ISIS population, in the mass shooter population, they all have in common a very high percentage, about 90% dad-deprived boys. And what happens when boys are dad-deprived is they don't have a male role model to channel their testosterone constructively. Um, and so you don't, and, and, and the male role model tends, in, a, in addition to being just a male role model, uh, dads tend to be much tougher on boundary enforcement, and the boundary enforcement creates postponed gratification, which leads the boys to being able to be successful at school or successful in sports, to feel more proud of themselves, not ashamed of themselves, not withdrawing, not feeling like an outsider. Wow, how good is that? Well, it's absolutely fantastic, and I would love to dig deep into that whole question because it's there is so much emotional, illogical uh, rhetoric being thrown around. Um, the idea that to say that is to somehow attack the single moms of the world and single moms have become this weird sort of godhead in america now where every politician constantly is mentioning single moms and how important it is to blah 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 and and that's fine and and some of y'all are better off without the man or it was an accident or whatever to say that a pitcher really needs a catcher is not a judgment as to the pitcher's sincerity as a baseball player how many households is it true for where you do have mom and dad or a man and a woman uh where the dad tends to be what he just said, more of the boundary setter, the more of no, we're not going to get that than the mom is. That's just right. It's every that's what I grew up with. It's what happens in our house and the people I know. Well, and anybody who would deny that the 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 vast majority of dads and moms conform to the following description is just they haven't observed enough of life. Mom frequently. When little boy, little girl falls down, skins knee, is about concern, comfort, healing, etc. And dads are often, you're going to be fine. Pick yourself up. You're fine. Don't worry about it. It's just a little scrape. And we need both of those things. We need the balance. Have since the dawn of man. And to deny that is politically correct nonsense, which is not to say the single moms of the world or the single dads of the world aren't trying their damnedest and don't love their kids. But don't get into the stupid zero-sum argument. Right. Whether it's one or the other, that's just ridiculous. Right. To be pro-dad, you need not be anti-mom. Only an idiot would think that way. Why do I attack? But Why his, do I lash out? Because We're talking about angry people lashing out and look at me. His Probably because I really want a donut, and I'm not going to have one. His stat. Can you play the first part of that again? Because the stat is so good. Same approach at Google. That's uh, Ted Cruz. Why is Ted L-Y and apostrophe? What, what I found is that in the prison population, in the ISIS population, in the mass shooter population, they all have in common a very high percentage, about 90% dad-deprived boys. Okay, so there you go. ISIS, people in prison, and your mass shooters, 90% dad-deprived. 
That's an overwhelming, that's not just the majority of, or it tends to lean that way. Sure. Now, that's practically everybody. Right. Wow. And, and as we learned the other day, the, the four commonalities uh, that are virtually 100% among these mass murderers, uh, my prefer, preferred term is that, um, uh, is that they experience trauma, violence, abuse, uh, neglect, uh, bullying, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of that, you know, comes from fatherlessness or if you've got a father who's a monster. Um, same thing. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Which again, uh, and it's, you know, one of the challenges of doing this radio show is that we're not doing a six hour long podcast. Um, there's, there are nuances. There are, there's tangents and tangents on those tangents that I think are pretty important to talk about, but we just don't have time. So spare us the angry email. Are you guys saying we just, we don't have time to get to all of it? Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, my husband was abusive and blah, blah, blah. You think I should have stuck with him? That sort of thing. I'm just saving you the, the time it would take to write it and send it. We're not talking about that. But anyway, we got this absolutely fabulous note. It's, um, it's related. It's from, um, Rose, um, who's an English teacher, high school and English teacher. I'm talking about, um, disconnected, angry, purposeless, uh, young men. As a high school inner-city English teacher, for 30-plus years, I found what worked for me for angry, turned-off, and sullen young men. And this, oh my God, this is so out of uh, Jordan Peterson and his book, 12 Rules for Croquet? Success, life, Ah, life, not croquet. Anyway, this is so out of that. Um, What worked for me... With the turned off, angry, sullen young men, I would put them in a position of power. She says power. I would use the word responsibility. The first day or two, I would tell them my plan. If we have an actual real life lockdown or crisis, I would tell the males how they need to help me. Um, take uh, the the females to the back of the room. How they would be my backup if there would be, say, an active shooter. These young men, for the last twenty years since Columbine, would listen intently and take their stance to heart during school practice drills, as I would describe how they needed to lift my heavy desk and barricade the door and also be my backup. Someone came through the door and would jump on them. They would be my backup to take the gun away. Besides a serious life and death scenario, I would choose these disconnected young men to take my attendance down to the office. After my lesson, I would choose another young man to check my teacher box and bring me back my mail. I would share a private joke with them when they accomplished their task. Tardies, I would have another one or others uh, document, take down the tardies, etc. Empower and recognize the yearnings for recognition. That's what I used. Any behavior problems, male or female, one has to recognize the problem, own it, and figure out what the student needs. Then keep your classroom open during lunch and talk to the students at lunchtime as if they were equals and pose special issues or problems and how to fix them. I would tell all my students how I couldn't believe I was being paid to be with them. Their smiles and their enthusiasm would make the hardest heart soft. Oh, my God. What a gift of humanity. Yeah. Rose, congrats. Don't get a big head or anything, but God bless you. That's beautiful. I'm surprised you get away with that. Um, I mean, can you do that in a modern public school? Say the guys are going to set the desk up here. Somebody sues, implying that women aren't strong, Title IX, whatever the hell. And- right, exactly. Yeah, that's demeaning to the girls in the class. Uh, that's amazing, and it, it just repeats something we've observed over and over and over again. A, a friend was just telling me about uh, a documentary he'd seen about yet another miserable, failing inner-city school that was taken over by a dynamic, 
demanding a black woman, and it was a heavily black neighborhood, who said, yeah, nobody's failing around here. I know you can succeed. You're going to succeed. And by God, the kids succeeded. No, it's not as simple as that. They have to be given the tools. They have to be encouraged. They, you know, there's, there's, you know, counseling involved, but it's about high expectations, not about demeaning people and telling them. And this is the most insidious message in American politics in the last century. You can't succeed. You cannot succeed because of your color or where you were born or your religion or whatever. No way. You need me as a politician to save you because you cannot succeed. That is a poisonous, slanderous, horrific message. And if I could stamp it out, I would. There's no doubt about it that the the whole mass shooting thing is uh, primarily a young man thing. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Dr. Drew Pinsky, who has a radio show and a TV show. Loveline guy? Yeah. yeah, With Adam Carolla? Celebrity of the day, yeah. Yeah. Also celebrity rehab on MTV. All right. Yeah. But he does a radio show. He's fed up with the homeless situation in our country, particularly in the town he lives in, Los Angeles, which I was just there on vacation, and it's extraordinary. Hmm. Uh, who's he talking to here? Uh, this was one of the the panel shows on Fox News. It's got Greg Gutfeld was the only guy that I recognized, and three or four other people uh, just kind of discussing uh, the homeless situation. But I practiced medicine for years. Please don't don't confuse my success in the media with my day job, where I've been an assistant profession, uh, clinical professor of medicine and psychiatry, and I've run departments in a psychiatric hospital. These are my patients on the street. Mm-hmm. I know who they are. I've treated this population for years, and it is ridiculous that they're calling it a home like housing problem. It is ridiculous. The rat thing. I saw that coming 18 months ago. I predicted the typhus epidemic. It hit and is amongst us now. The problem is there are things that follow typhus. Given that they've done nothing for this rat population, there are other illnesses that will follow. We have tuberculosis exploding. We will see Arsenia, which you may know as plague. We have potential measles. We have people, their excrement and their bleeding and their urinating in the street every day that is getting washed directly into the LA River. Oh. 60,000 people's excrement is getting into the river, into the ocean every day. Wow. If I had a city of 60,000 people that was disconnected from the sewage treatment plant, my God, the environmentalists would have would freak out. Where are they? That we have mammalian die off off our coast now, mammalian sea life, dolphins, sea lions dying because of all this garbage, untreated, going directly into the the ocean where's the help but what about Where the plastic it? straws uh, the plastic straw got a stir a turtle but 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 this is insane we've yeah. gone insane and unfortunately the city of los angeles is maintaining this rhetoric that it's a housing problem look guys conservatively conservatively the city of los angeles absorbed about 800,000 undocumented immigrants in the last year or so they're all living in a house mm-hmm. none of them are on the street 800,000 people wow. without a without a penny without a family without a country found a place to live now either they pushed people into the streets, which I'm not prepared to say, where they found a place to live. And this housing rhetoric is a hoax. This is a mental health crisis. This is an addiction crisis. And it is a general health so what crisis. Did the hus- Boy, that is a good one. That how, is good how, stuff. How about all the people who show up here with nothing and don't speak the language and figure out a way to find a roof over their head? Boy, that's some good stuff. Way to go, Dr. Drew. And, uh, you know, it reminds me, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and the uh, mayor of L.A. was uh, talking about, I think he put out a statement on the website about why there's a homeless situation. And not once were drug addiction, alcoholism mentioned. It was all economics and lack of housing and the rest of it. It was all uh, all economic issues. And it's just such a lie. It's a complete lie. Boy, and also, again, you uh, what Dr. Drew said, that you set up a town somewhere 
where you got 60,000 people who just poop in the streets or their backyard or the local creek or whatever mm-hmm. and see how long before all kinds of different government agencies come down on you. Right. But that's what they've got going on in Los Angeles. And environmental groups as well. What are you going to do? Crazy. Right. Exactly. They, well, they don't want to lack compassion. You make it easy for people to be bums and junkies. You get more bums and junkies. You make it difficult, like it's always been, to pollute the streets, the towns, the the parks. You make it difficult to be a bum and a junkie. You get fewer bums and junkies. Likewise with criminals. I mentioned this earlier this morning. My brother and his family, transferred by the Navy, made a very brief stop in San Francisco to glimpse the Golden Gate Bridge. They were probably only feet away when the thieves busted into their car and stole all their valuables as they make a 5,000-mile move, whatever it is. And and it was a horrendous day. Their laptops are gone. Their kids' backpacks all got stolen with their stuffed animals they sleep with. And it's just, it's a nightmare. And I've been reaching out to various folks um, in the law enforcement community, including SFPD, San Francisco Police Department. We've been talking about Props 47 and 57 in Cal Unicornia, which essentially... Uh, decriminalized crime, and there's been an explosion in property crime rates. San Francisco has more than double the property crime rate of Chicago. More than double. Got this from a SFPD cop. Yeah, the auto break-ins are an epidemic in San Francisco. What used to be a crime committed late night by the bottom dwellers is now done in broad daylight by groups of young thugs who listen to scanner apps and rap about bippin' whips on YouTube. They're brazen and don't give an S because they know we can't chase them. They target tourist areas because they know they have lots of stuff in them. Oh. It's horrible. And the chances of your family getting the stuff back is small. Sometimes the loot is recovered. That's rough. That is really rough. Yeah. Oh, and then uh, commentary continues. San Francisco has gone to S. Then he mentions a couple of cities that are going right around the corner because they have some of the same moronic, completely unrealistic views of humanity and crime and and, and, uh, substance abuse and the rest of it. God, please, just take a minute to to consider the concept of uh of the the term enabler you're enabling people if you if you cover for your husband every time he gets wasted and does something terrible you cover for your kid who who, who keeps causing problems at school cuz he's in drugs and you never let the hammer come down you never let the bricks come down on him do you think you're helping them get healthy do you really? Well, do me a favor and spend 15 minutes today reading about uh, being an enabler. We have a society of enablement. And and what it's yielded is so obvious. It Again, I, it's like I'm trying to convince somebody not to press their hand down on a hot stove burner. I can't believe I'm having to form the words. San Francisco, your property crime rate is more than twice Chicago's. Why do you think that is? Because, well, it's very expensive to, you know, the... Uh, because the, Google came in, in income inequality. Income inequality. The patriarchy, white supremacy, uh, Trump, um, something, something. No, it's because you've made it so easy and accommodating to be a bum, a junkie, and a thief, and a piece of crap. By, my, by the way, the idea of, of getting a couple of baseball bats and going to the very place that crime took place and just waiting. 
Uh, it's become very popular among a certain circle of folks I know. Uh, I, I won't be joining them, <laughs> as far as now, you know. When I got my uh, car stereo stolen out of my truck, um, when I moved to the West Coast, lived here like a week and got my stereo stolen out of my truck, I was so mad. I contemplated the idea of putting a stereo back in my truck, parking it in the same spot, but sleeping in the back seat with a gun every day because I wanted to kill the person who took the car stereo out of my... Now, you're not allowed to kill somebody for a $2,000 theft, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the idea of I worked for this money, show up to work every day, get this money and buy something, and Pay you get to take it, on it, makes me murderously angry. Right. And you think you just get to take it. And then when you call the police, they're like, okay, fill out a form. You and everybody they else. They won't can. let us chase those people. Your city fathers won't permit us to do anything about that crime. And when we do catch people, they've decided it's a misdemeanor and don't worry about it. It's pretty maddening. It's like jaywalking. The, the people, the taxpayers, the honest people who build and contribute to society have been abandoned by their governments in a lot of blue states and blue cities. Shame on you. Shame. So your brother and his family. Shame. 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 You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Listen, I will uh, gladly, with with enthusiasm, follow up on our previous discussion about the helmetization of America and particularly our children. There are a number of factors at work, and I, you know, I would gladly sit down today and start writing the book. I would have so much enthusiasm for this topic. But number one, there are already too many books, <laughs> and and number two, that's why you burn them in big piles. Number two, <laughs> at night. That's right. And, and and number two, I'm a man who craves leisure, and that sounds like a lot of work. That's funny. So, I don't know. It's up to you. Do you want to move on or what? Do you, I, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. The Jack talking about the thousand rules at the pool, and, and they're so picky, and very few of them are have any significant safety concern. Oh, I mean, no. God, just, no. A God, no. A, a five-year-old jumps off the side of the pool and kind of sort of twists in the air, and they get whistled for that. And, right. All and of the, all the, if you're older and you haven't been to a community pool, all the normal things you did at a pool when you were a kid, I mean older by like over 30, <laughs> all the normal things you did at the community pool you can't do anymore. Right. They're too dangerous. Right. Driven by lawyers, driven by this weird obsession with with safety at all times that I, I have fallen prey to myself. If I was starting over as a parent, I would do a number of things differently. I got sucked in. I didn't know. I didn't have kids before. Right. I got sucked into the whole world at the baby store of all this safety stuff that I just don't think is necessary. And I think is part of making our kids insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a two-sided coin of nasty, of evil, in that we never, uh, I mean, we, we convince them that there is danger everywhere always, which will stress someone. And number two, we don't let them explore and try and get a little scared and learn how to deal with it and understand, oh, this actually is something I don't want any part of. I'm backing off. That's such an important life skill. One of the most persuasive things I've read in recent years, it was talking about the whole free-range parenting thing, of which I'm a huge advocate. It said every child needs to get lost twice and find their way back before they have the life skill of staying cool, dealing with the unfamiliar, and thinking, okay, I can handle this. 
And most parents are utterly terrified of the idea of their kid ending up on a street and realizing, okay, I'm not sure how to get home from here. It's an incredibly important life skill. I think it fits in. We actually talked about this on the One More Thing podcast, if you ever listen to those. Because I stole, I told the story yesterday, including F-bombs. <laughs> it does sound entertaining. Of being at the swimming pool and how the lifeguard whistled my kid for uh, something stupid. And, and, and I lost my temper a little bit with the uh, the lifeguard who was just doing their job. But um, all this stuff started happening at the same time. Now, you can't deny that we have unprecedented levels of anxiety among children. There's no denying that. There's plenty of proof of that, including just your own life, in that everybody you know has like one or more kids that are dealing with anxiety problems. Yes. Where did that come from? Um, And and in Europe, at least, they, they, they started ahead of us, and they're ahead of the curve on they're now starting to take out the super safe playgrounds and replace them with some of the old dangerous stuff, like monkey bars and teeter-totters, because they realize it's doing more harm than, than good. But all this stuff happened at the same time. I'm not making the argument that we need to throw all of it out, but it all happened together. So, mandatory helmets on bicycles, and seat belts, and the little plastic things that you put in the plug on the wall, all happened around the same time that we started not letting you do a cannonball at the pool or run on the grass. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of us, if you're over a certain age, you didn't grow up with any of that. Never wore a helmet, never wore a seatbelt, never had a plastic thing protecting me from the outlet, never told I was could do, I could do anything at the pool that I wanted to do. I mean, so we went from all of those things I just mentioned to none of those things in a pretty short span. And I think the the, the result is, We've convinced children that the world is so scary they should spend their whole lives nervous. Right, right. That's and, part of it. Oh, and, and I, I skipped over my point. So you said uh, kids need to get lost so they can deal with it. I think, because I, I see this with my kids and other people's kids, somehow we've convinced them, it's the parents' fault, my fault, not their fault, it's the parents' fault, we've convinced them that getting hurt at all is is just a disaster. Right. <laughs> so if you get hurt, oh my God, I've gotten hurt, you warned me about this, corners of the table, Doing a twist at the pool, not wearing a helmet. I've heard about this getting hurt. This must be what it feels like. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Right. When, you know, children used to get hurt on a daily basis and you realized it wasn't that big a deal. It would go away after a while. Clean it off. Go back to playing. Uh, So, yeah, there there are a lot of things that work. The liability thing is enormous. In in Europe's different tort laws, I think, are a factor in the fact that they can even do it. I, I read some great stuff on with the decline of religion in America. People are now searching for some sort of redemption on earth and or eternal life on earth. They want to be immortal because they don't believe in life after death anymore. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's a little eggheaded a notion, but you do see signs of it. One thing that nobody wants to talk about, uh, and we will hear because I don't give a damn. And it's not a question of whether it's good or bad. I'm looking at this more as a, like a, anthropologist would than somebody advocating one thing or another the reason things like or or more socialist policies work in your scandinavian countries is that's like one race they have been historically one race one religion one point of view there's like three different last names everybody knows everybody it's a smaller place and they have shared common values and so everybody knows what their responsibilities are and how they're supposed to act. It's like, you know, uh, Sebastian Younger in Tribe talks about how in, you know, like Indian tribes, it was share and share alike. Everybody pitched in and everybody uh, got enough food and blah, blah, blah. But if you didn't contribute, you were put to death. 
There was no laziness. There was no slacking. There was no being on Indian welfare. If you weren't contributing, you were either shoved out to starve to death or they would just put a spear in your belly. You were killed. That's how socialism can work if everybody agrees on what everybody's responsibility is and everybody pressures everybody to do it which would never happen in the United States. But so back to the the zillion rules at the school or at the pool or at schools or whatever. Back when the country was overwhelmingly, um, and people like to talk about the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant thing, but when overwhelmingly people were Christian, the Bible, believed in Western civilization, believed in the Constitution, and and had a fairly common view of life, there was no need for a thousand rules because there were a thousand unspoken rules. We had a culture that made clear to you what your expectations were. There was no law against, or there needn't be a law against dropping an F-bomb in front of children at a McDonald's. There's no need for that law because if you did it, ten different dads would get in your face. Say, hey, what are you doing? There are women and children here. But as our society has, why don't we say, become more diverse in terms of nationality, religion, culture, tradition, etc., we don't have those shared agreements anymore. So you've got to codify all of it. You've got to have a list of 1,006 rules. You know, societies that are fighting for their lives don't worship safety. That's an absurdity because there isn't enough of it. So you worship toughness and self-reliance and cleverness and the rest of it. Um, so you combine all those things together. That's my book, in short. Don't bother reading it. It's overly long. But that that's the argument I'm making my book. We have really three or four different factors that have led us to this terrified, cowardly, veal-calf society that we have now. I was just thinking about my average... Let your kid out of his cage, by the way. That's my advice to you. I was just thinking about my average summer day... When I was my uh, son's age, and around nine years old, this I was in eighteen seventy. <laughs> I I would have done, geez, I don't know, twenty five dangerous things that he's not going to do today. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like dangerous, sneak your dad's forty five out of the gun safe and shoot at your friends. Like ride your bike fast and and go off a dirt jump. And like I said, I'm not advocating doing away with all this stuff, but. I would have been riding my bike without a helmet. We would have been. Uh, we would have been at the. We we might have gone to the community pool and done all kinds of crazy, dangerous things like cannonballs or, uh, or or worn our goggles when we jumped off the diving board or no, any no. of the other stupid rules that they you have. Had to the put out your board. eye. Or stuff that I can control, like just playing on your own and running around the countryside. And my parents didn't know where we were. Right, you just had to be back at noon or whatever, and <laughs> time for dinner. Um. Swinging on a rope clear across a barn from one giant stack of hay bales to another stack of hay bales. I could do that with my kids, but we don't. So I'm, I've fallen prey to this myself. Um, I'm, I'm part of the society that does this. County will just, come and take them away. Yeah, they might. It's, 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 it's something though. It, huh. it really worries me because it, I mean, mean like deeply bothers me the idea of giving a kid lifelong anxiety problems. Because they're told at the pool or at home or wherever that life is so scary. It's nuts. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I don't know. Luckily, my kids are mostly learning, at least at the pool, that life is full of stupid rules that you, uh, that you should ignore if you can. Yeah. Um, and, and not that it's dangerous. Yeah. 
God dang it. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, we just explained. I, I think part of it is, listen, if you are if you got a band of apes there in the jungle and the fruit just falls from the trees, the apes aren't any good at gathering fruit. They don't need to be. It's just uh, we've created this incredibly safe, uh, affluent, litigious environment, so people are no good at, at finding their own way. But got so you know many what? different That's places. Lawyers do drive a lot of it, but the the getting hurt. Somebody just texted about the getting hurt is a disaster for kids. Yeah, well, at schools they treat any injury like it's a disaster. Right. I mean, if somebody gets cut and they're bleeding, it's a whoop 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 alert whoop whoop. Somebody got a scratch whoop whoop. Yeah. Because somebody might get sued. I think that's what drives most of it. Wow. So everybody, all the kids getting their idea. It's a very, very big deal if you get a little cut on yourself on the playground. It's a huge deal. And whatever, however that kid got cut, that no kid can ever do that again. Do not right. play on that again in that way because somebody got cut. Right. Right. That's, God, that's so crazy. It is. It's making everybody crazy. Wow. Parents and children. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. So there's this Canadian trans woman, Jessica Yaniv. Sometimes she's Jonathan Yaniv, depends on, I don't know, her mood, his mood. That's part of the gender <clears throat> fluidity thing? You I change guess. from day to day? Sure. Or moment to moment? Some do. He still has his male junk, Jack. This is in Canada, you have to understand. We're there farther down the... Politically correct, bizarro, punishing you for thinking what you think road, like Europe. It's it's unhealthy. It's terrible. Jordan Peterson, Mark Stein have fought against this brilliantly. But So this guy still has his male junk. But thanks to the, and I'm quoting from this Canadian uh, post-millennial uh, website, a uh, piece by Barbara Kay, which is just terrific. But thanks to the recently invented but imprecisely divined right of gender expression, having been enshrined in legislation in Canada, this Yaniv guy has wreaked havoc on the lives of waxologists in British Columbia. These women, many of them immigrants, earn a modest living by performing intimate hair removal services for other women. Isn't that something you can do yourself? God, I can't imagine. I don't think so. I know women do this, and and some men, but... Can't imagine having somebody really, you know, really getting into your uh, your nether regions. And Everybody's got nether regions, Jack. Know, it's okay. It's yeah, you'll be fine. How many people outside of well, <clears throat> almost none outside of lovers and doctors rarely do you have down in your business? <clears throat> almost never. <clears throat> get out of my business. <laughs> anyway, if I can get back to the thread, um. And there, listen, in, in case you're really, really, really slow on the uptake, there are going to be body parts mentioned in this segment. And some people are going to attempt to make humor out of this. Truth. If this, thank you, Mr. Chairman, sir. Um, if there are a Mr. Special, whatever you are, um, if you are off put by that sort of thing, uh, we'll see you in 10 minutes or five. So, well, these women, many of them immigrants, do the intimate hair removal for other women. They refused to wax Yaniv's balls. And here their troubles began. Did you need to say that? Would you settle down? Wow. You need to grow up. Some of these women... I am grown up. And since I'm not in fifth grade, I don't expect to hear that word anymore. Some of these women have had to abandon their job and their livelihood because the state authorities or the provincial authorities are forcing them to wax these guys' Man parts. 
the and the story's been so out of being uh... this unhinged dude who's demonstrated on social media what any reasonable person would call a sick frame of mind is with the state's blessing and collusion targeting and abusing uh, women to satisfy his or her kinky drives. So you could, in Canada at least, go to one of these shaven places, say, you know what, I am a woman, so I want you to manipulate me down there for the next hour. You have to. It's the law. Right. Okay. Exactly. That's uh, that's something. Yeah. This um, The story is important because if human rights tribunals were guided by reason and objectivity, none of this guy's complaints would have passed any common sense test. The license affords Yaniv, uh, afforded to Yaniv cements the fictitious no- notion that when it comes to rights, gender identity may be held by ideologues and their legislative surrogates to trump biology, even in an area that is so simply and fundamentally anatomically based, there's no wiggle room for interpretation. This isn't about expressions of gender. It's about penises and vaginas. And there's, it's, so the idea that these, there, well, back to Thomas Sowell's, there are some ideas that are so stupid only intellectuals could hold them. No, you do, you do need to wax that person's genitals because they, they are expressing themselves as a woman. No person with any sense could miss the ridiculousness of that. As the targeted waxologists explain, and by the way, my band, the Waxologist, has broken up. Our drummer's on heroin. Oh, I, I just hear that. We, we kept, I just, he would never show up for gigs. So, anyway, uh, as the targeted Waxologist explained, a woman's genitals require one kind of treatment with one kind of wax, a man's genitals, another. The women were trained to wax female genitals only and were not competent to wax male genitals without risking harm to that person. Some of the women. I'm okay with harming that guy. Some of the women worked alone at home with children present. Some had religious scruples against touching the opposite sex parts. Sure. But let us set these considerations aside for the moment, because even if a woman has no religious scruples about touching male bodies, and even if she works in a salon, she would still have the same basic case for refusal as the modest women. The bottom line is, when an individual is getting his or her genitals waxed, there's no gender involved, and that's easy to prove. Imagine this Jessica or Jonathan Yanov is now a corpse and has left instructions for burial with waxed genitals, which, I mean, that's the deluxe treatment. I mean, whoo! I want to go out of this world smooth. <laughs> I entered into it smooth. I want to go out smooth. <laughs> I mean, that's like when you get your your wheels cleaned and your tires polished and your dashboard shine. I mean, that's the full treatment right, right. there. Uh, who would do Who would do that job? Someone practiced in the waxing of female genitals or someone practiced in the waxing of male genitals? At this point, Yanov's gender would not even be moot. It would vanish entirely as a corpse. So it would be ludicrous to call for a woman-centric waxologist. Don't you see the fact that Yanov is alive makes no material difference in the realm of waxology? Whether Yanov thinks he's a woman is as irrelevant to genital waxing as if he were dead, since Yanov's anatomy remains ruthlessly male. This is such a beautiful example of the illogic and the insanity of the intersectional wackadoo progressive movement. You people are nuts! It's pretty interesting. 
Don't hate anybody. Don't hurt anybody. Don't deny anybody their rights. But quit being lunatics. Joe brought up the idea of when it became okay to say penis on TV and radio, which we were pegging in the 90s. Somebody who uh, apparently studies this for a living um, said Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, they made a big deal of Mary Tyler Moore saying penis on Saturday Night Live in 1989. And that was uh, really the beginning of uh, mainstreaming. Nah. It started late at night on a Saturday night and then took years before we got to uh, Clinton and Bobbitt yeah, before I it was think... really <clears throat> nah. okay. I disagree. Just in the straight, adult, news, serious world, Lorena Bobbitt made it go from never to every single day for weeks. I mean, that was just... And the culture was prepared for it. So it was a time when it could happen. I see. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mary um, Tyler Moore saying penis is uh, something I'll try not to picture. Armstrong and Getty. You're listening.